I'm not trying to be a jerk. Um, I mean, I'll admit I'm a little unconventional sometimes, and uh, <laughs> I know it's Thanksgiving week and your bulletin cover doesn't reflect that. You did see what I'm preaching on today. I, I just, I think it bears a little explanation. I, 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 I only do it because I love you. You know that, right? I, I want you to be prepared. And, and, and you thought you'd see some fall colors that says, like, be thankful. Something like that would be cool. Um, and if I were normal, perhaps that's what you would have. But I want to give you what, what I think you need, not, not what you expect. And I think you need to kind of figure this out on a week that, you know, is kind of presenting itself as we enter into the new holiday season here, like this Norman Rockwell picture of we should all just be, we should all be thankful and happy and it ought to be just great. And, um, and yet, in the last month, we've, we've had some pretty jarring headlines, right? We've had you know, Hamas fighters invade Israeli kibbutz, kill children, right? slaughter of, of, of babies. Um, this last election last week, right? sweeping headlines are, are the, the, the pro-abortion legislation is winning across the country right now. Um, it, it just, it goes on and on and on, it seems. And, you know, you, you, you pull up the news and, and, and we see video of, of, of unruly mobs going into businesses and, and looting with impunity. We see in Chicago, the lowest uh, um, budget for, for police in decades. We see non-enforcement of, of, of law. We see injustice. We see um, our governor sign a, a law just recently that, that it, it barred any ban of LGBTQ teaching in our, in our state. It, you just, you look around and, and, and you, know, just, you don't feel like shopping for a turkey at that point and getting ready for a party. These things um, irritate, frustrate, anger, and um, we have this sense of, like, if we just say, like, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. If we just say stuff like that, it'll just, it'll just make it better, it'll go away. Uh, or, or we put our fingers in our ears, we don't want to listen to the headlines, we don't want to see what's going on in our culture. Uh, we don't want to think the darkness is winning, and, and, and we want to somehow just pretend it away, but it... it it's the reality of where we live, and the forecast is only that it's going to get worse. Things will proceed from bad to worse before the Lord comes back. And so we understand that, and if it doesn't leave you with some irking feelings of frustration, irritation, anger, um, th th then you're not normal. You're not a normal Christian. Um, so if you're normal, I, I, I think we need, to, we need to address this. What do we do with it? And it's funny because I had planned to preach on this topic with this dangling weekend here. Do we get back into Acts? You know, it wouldn't work. So it's like, okay, I got to pray about what to preach on. And I decided to preach on this passage in Ephesians 4 because I see this as something just with my sense of a pulse 
on, on my congregation. It's like, I think we need to talk about this. How do we deal with the, the anger? And that's all indignation means, right? It's an anger. It's a kind of anger, a right kind of anger that we have about the bad things going on. Like, what do we do with this? How do we respond? And um, it was affirmed to me just last week. I was over at a home and invited over, and, and, and the host, I love him, but he, he, he talked about getting his, his guns out and taking care of the problem himself, you know? And I'm like, okay, well... I appreciate the boldness. The pastor's here. Let me just get the sanction on my plan to deal with all that I'm reading in the headlines. Um, I was just affirming. I said, please come to church next Sunday. Um, that's, that's not the right answer, but the right answer isn't for me to be there going, oh, don't, don't, don't feel that way. Because that's our natural reaction. You go up to someone on the patio, you say, how you doing? They say, angry. You'd be like, oh, Okay. We have counseling here at the church for that. We get you fixed. Have a donut. I mean, I don't know. You're going to say something to try and assuage this man's anger. But we got to stop with this one-dimensional view of the Christian life because we can quote passages of the Bible about the Lord is good that we're going to say, well, okay, well, he's good. Everything's copacetic. Everything's fine. I should be good. You should be good. We should all be good. Um, you know, it is because God is good that he isn't good with all of this. You just need to know that. You've seen the memes, um, how it started, how it's going. Super funny. Those are good. The sermon gets boring. Just we got free Wi-Fi. Go and just look at some of it. It's just so funny. Just don't laugh out loud. Um, here's how it started. Genesis 1.30. God looked at everything he made and he said, it's very good. That's how it started. It started where God said, this is great. Um, how's it going? Well, just read the news headlines. I mean, you couldn't get out of the third chapter without it not going well. But you couldn't get to the sixth chapter until the whole globe was infested with it not going well. And, and God was uh, first grieved and then angered, and then he responded in judgment. Um, have things changed? Like, is God mad in the Old Testament, like some would say, and then the New Testament, he you know, took a nap? in the 400 years between the Testament, then he's like, see, so much cheerier now. Or is there parody here? As a matter of fact, can I look in the Bible and see that, that God has a, uh, a righteous anger that he would expect people that claim to be godly, you're going to throw that adverb on your life, a godly person, well, then you ought to reflect some of the godly attributes, the God attributes. And, and, and God is good in that sense. He is morally righteous and holy, and therefore he's not good with what's going on. So I thought we would take a passage that, if you read it carefully, should blow your mind. Uh, and it doesn't fit the one-dimensional view that a lot of Christians have. So let's just see if there's more to, more to this than just slapping someone on the back, giving them a donut, and saying, well, I hope you get over your anger. Uh, maybe, there's, maybe there's another approach to this. So turn to Ephesians 4. This is the passage. I want to look at it. I'm going to look at verses 26 through 32. Now, if you look at this passage really quickly and glance at it, there's two verses about anger, and you say, well, the rest of this is not about anger. Well, I'm going to challenge that and, and tell you I think all of this hangs together under the heading of, of, of anger. And let's start here just by reading this text in verse 26. Um, we're not a responsive reading kind of church. I understand that. But find the passage, and let's just read the first two words together. Can we do that? Ready? Here are the first two words of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Ready? 
be angry. Okay, let's pray. Right? I mean, it's just like, I thought we'd get be thankful, but instead we got be angry at my church. What did you do at your church? Right? I was Saddleback and Mariners today. I assume it's a little different than, than, than be angry, right? It's just like, this is, this is what's wrong with Compass right here. Um, be angry. Just a weird way to put it, isn't it? Be angry. Now, grammatically, ESV translators, and I like the ESV translators. Of course, the Bible is really written in the New Testament in, in Koine Greek. And so the trans- translators got to this passage, and they just, they just went, blah, here's what it says, right? Be angry. Because that's exactly what it says. It's an imperative verb in Greek, and it just, it's, it's, I mean, they've done, they've done right to it. But gr- grammarians and, and, and linguists will look at this, who know ancient Greek, and they'll say, well, you know, this could be what they call, when you study Greek, you learn all the different ways in which the, these moods and voices are, are, are understood. And some would say, well, this is, this is a, like a conditional imperative. Like, like if, if you get angry, then you get the rest of the, of the first phrase there, don't sin. Um, okay. If you're angry, don't sin. That, that, I guess you could say there's a place for that in some other examples in the language. Uh, or, you know, if, if you find yourself angry, if, if there's cause to be angry, if there's a reason to be angry, just make sure you don't sin. I'll agree. There's a lot more verbiage that's spilt on what, you, what you're not supposed to do with the anger. But the, the verb is an imperative. It's a clear imperative, like be angry. And I'll argue, though, even though I'm not going to argue with the linguists who studied languages more than I have, that, okay, it could be a conditional imperative where you just say, well, if you find yourself angry, make sure you don't sin. Even in that, there's great allowance. You'd say it's permissible, but it is an imperative. And I will say, by the time we're done, you really can't be a good Christian and not be angry. I just think we've got to get to that place. So he says, and again, let's just pretend you're me for a minute. That's, that's horrible. Uh, but just imagine, uh, and, and, and you're, you're preaching through Ephesians. You're a pastor, you're preaching through Ephesians, and you're saying, okay, what do I do with this? You know, I, I grew up under Pastor Mike, and he does these series, and he takes things and pins together. This doesn't look like a series. It looks like more like Proverbs here, because I see two verses about anger, right? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. We're still talking about anger. And then verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. That sounds like that's a sermon right there. Bam. But then, verse 28, I got to now preach to the kleptomaniacs in my congregation, right? The thieves. Hey, thieves, right? Let the thieves no longer steal. That's a different sermon. That takes a different graphic, a different title, a different subtitle. Like, let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And then it's like, oh, wow, I did a whole sermon on one verse. Wow. Well, I got another verse coming up in verse 29, and that seems like we're on a whole nother topic. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those here. Well, now here's a good sermon on controlling your tongue making sure that you say the right things at the right time, and it's helpful, and it builds up. There's another sermon, different title, different graphic, different small group discussion questions. Then you get to verse 30, and you're like, wow, this is one of the most famous verses in the book of Ephesians, certainly in the fourth chapter. Like, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Wow, that's a sermon. That's a good sermon. And we talk about sin in general, and maybe we talk a little bit about your corrupting talk, or maybe we talk about your, your stealing, or, or maybe you're angry, but whatever. But I can talk about it. I don't want to grieve the Spirit. That's about sin, and I want to remember that he sealed me for the day of redemption. That's weird and interesting, and I don't know why he picked that, but okay, there's a sermon right there. 
And then I'm going to get back to a theme about my inner life. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Well, this seems like there was enough weeks between my sermon in verses 26 and 27 and 31. I've had a whole sermon about stealing. I've had a whole sermon about speaking. I've had a whole sermon about grieving the Spirit of God. Well, now maybe I can squeeze this in and do a sermon against anger, and then no one will notice, right, that I preached for it in, in verse 26. And, and so I can, I can preach on that, bitterness and, and wrath and anger and clamor and, and, and slander and malice. Verse 32, I got another sermon. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ. See, you just see what I've done here, right? It's like, this seems like a potpourri of, of sermons. I'm gonna keep the graphics department busy. They're gonna be doing all kinds of different graphics, all feel different, different covers on the bulletin. We're all over the map in this series. And we'll just call it like general principles from Paul on, on living life. Okay, I thought about dealing with the problem of our people getting angry because of the bad things in the world, and I thought, well, I could preach on verses 26 and 26 because I'm just di- I'm parachuting into this book, and I'm going to say bye, and we're going to go into other stuff, but I thought, no, I think all of this hangs together, and, and, and even if you don't want to buy the fact that the Apostle Paul was thinking about this one theme of anger and weaving it through the example of thieves and speaking and grieving the Spirit and then something that seems contradictory in verse 31 and then kindness and forgiveness in the verse 32, I'm going to say I think this is precisely what the Spirit had in mind who drove Paul to write this. This all fits so nicely together. It fits together because everything explains the problem of anger and what to do with anger. So I want to piece this all together. And and it's not going to lay out nicely like you might want. Look at the the worksheet. You see, I always put the verses next to the points. And you can see I start with 26A, and that stands on its own because I do think this is the theme. So we start with this. We make an observation about it. But then we get into 26B, don't let the sun go down on your anger, and we start talking about stealing. We start talking about corrupting language. And all of this is going to tie together to somehow help us know how this doesn't come out wrong, and then in verse 26, I'm sorry, 27, give the devil no opportunity, which really hangs with verse 26. Let let me go back. Being angry, let's just deal with those words, and then saying, but we don't want to sin. I can now deal with with the thief and, and the talk. Straighten that out. Let's go back. We can edit that out. Not letting the sun go down on my anger and giving the devil no opportunity. There's a combination of concepts, right, that would make me think, okay, there's something about the fact that this can't linger and take root in my life because the devil will take advantage. He'll, he'll leverage this. So verses 30 through 32. I'll try to make sense of this as we go through. But what I'm doing is saying, let's look at the parts of this one discussion that are forthrightly. These verses are forthrightly about anger. And let's just see how everything that follows fits nicely to elucidate what we've just looked at. All right, that sounds too complicated to me. But here we go. Let's start with the first two words, be angry. Why in the world would God send the Apostle Paul to the early church and say, hey guys, you should be angry. Just make sure you don't sin, but be angry. Or when you're angry, or if you're angry, or if you have cause to be angry, even if it's a permissive kind of like conditional imperative, fine. Why isn't he just condemning all anger outright, which he seems to be doing, at least in verse 32, it seems that way. Um, But clearly it's not. So we translate it the way, we, we translate it just exactly as it's written, and then we say, well, what does it mean? Well, I think it means exactly what it says, and that is that you should be angry. There should be things that you're angry about. And I just want us to start with just the observation that it would not be permitted or prescribed if it weren't 
righteous, at least some of it righteous. That's why I chose the word indignation for the title. I know I'm showing you too much under the hood in the creation of all this, but I want you to think about the word indignation, which is apparently a kind of anger I can have without sinning, and I can do something with it. So let's just make this simple observation for number one, which is just found in those words, be angry. We need to understand, as Christians, would not be commanded here, would not be allowed here, were it not possible to be righteous. Realize anger can be righteous. Now, there's a lot of anger that's not righteous, right? If you, uh, you know, take my parking space, right? I, I, I may be prone to anger over that, but it's, it's, it's not, I, that's not righteous indignation. Right? I can tell myself that because I know the word, but it's not righteous indignation. Righteous indignation is something that I should say there is a righteous form of it. And here's the, here's the, here's the, Here's the ace right here. We're going to lay down like the, the, the nail in the coffin. I can solve the argument right now. Almost 400 times the concept of indignation or wrath or anger show up in the Bible from beginning to end. Almost 400. And over half of the references are attributable to God, where God reveals himself to be angry. So you need to realize anger can be righteous, and we'll start with this because our perfect God, who cannot sin, gets angry. Okay, so that'd be good to jot down, letter A. Let's just build our case here. Our righteous God, our holy God, he is holy, he never sins, he gets angry. All right, now keep your finger here in this passage, and just for a little Q&A we're about to have here, I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 7, and I want you to drop down to verse 11. And I want you to be prepared to answer the question that I'm about to ask. And here's the question I'm going to ask you. How often do you think God gets angry? How often do you think he gets angry? Like, because... I know in the Bible, he was mad at Pharaoh and, 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 and Egypt, and then later down the road, he got mad at Assyria, and then he got mad at the Philistines, he got mad at the Babylonians. He seemed to get mad in the intestinal period at the Greeks, and then the Romans clearly seems to get mad at. And, and so I know at least every you know, few hundred years he gets angry, but I just wonder if you, as a Bible scholar, reading the scriptures, give me a biblical answer, how often do you think God gets angry? Do you have a biblical answer? What does it say? Every day every day. Okay. I mean, we're, we're like miles from Thanksgiving at this point, but let's think about it. God gets angry every day, every day. The word there is translated indignation. All that means is a righteous anger. And don't even dare look at verse 12. Don't even look at it. Don't look at verse 12. Because he says he's sharpening his sword, wetting his sword, getting ready to judge. When I was young and a lot lighter, I preached a sermon on God getting angry, maybe because I was skinny and young. A woman met me at the door who was older and heavier, and she said to me, I'm not, I mean, just describing the scene so you can picture it. She, <laughs> she grabbed me and she said, I don't like that sermon, which I didn't surprise me. Uh, didn't like the sermon. And I said, why is that? She says, because my God does not get angry, she said to me. And, uh, you know, young, snarky, not anymore. But I was then. And I said, can you tell me what the word wrath means? Wrath? Because I'm, I'm assuming you believe in the wrath of God that seems to be all over the pages of the Bible. See, and can you tell me what the word wrath means? Wrath, look it up. Wrath, ha wrath has to do with extreme anger. And I guess, ma'am, are you saying God doesn't get angry like normally angry? He gets really angry? I don't think that's what you meant. Your, your God is happy. And I preach a sermon about the fact that God gets mad and you didn't like it. And I'm saying right now, hey, 
God gets mad all the time, every day. I want you to remember this verse. Not that you should quote it at Thanksgiving meal this week, but here's how you remember the reference. You'll forever remember. Let me ask you this. How often does a 7-Eleven get robbed in our country? Every day. Okay? So Psalm 7-Eleven. God gets mad every day because he doesn't like it when 7-Elevens get robbed. He gets angry at the injustice. He's a righteous judge, and our righteous judge, he gets angry every day. See, you're going to pull that one out at some point. You know, Psalm 7-Eleven says, God has indignation every day. I do think that might help take our one-dimensional view of God and Christianity that God isn't just up there smiling with our picture on his fridge going, hey, everything's great down there. He's not still saying, very good. He's saying, it's not good. And because I'm holy, it's not good. Matter of fact, I'm sharpening my weapons and implements of, of judgment. And as Psalm, I'm sorry, as Romans 2, verse 4 says, he's storing up his anger, his extreme anger, for the day of his judgment. So God is a God who gets angry every day. And if God is a righteous God who gets angry every day, and you say, I want to be godly, I'd like to reflect the communicable attributes of God, then you should be angry, but you should be angry and not sin. You should be angry about the things that God gets angry about. Let me start with something we've been reading about in our DBR. We're in our DBR, daily Bible, daily Bible reading. I hope you're following along. And not long ago, I guess this week, we were reading, uh, or last weekend at least, uh, Ezekiel chapter 9. And I hope when you read that, you thought, Pastor Mike quotes this passage all the time. In Ezekiel chapter 9, God is going to judge the people in Judah, in the, in the decrepit, terrible culture of Judah that was absolutely just like, had become like, it had become like Canaan. By the way, one of the marks of, Cain, of Canaan was the perversion of sexuality, homosexuality, one of the, one of the sins of the Canaanites, and, and along with child sacrifice and a lot of other things. And God said, I've been patient long enough. I'm going to use Joshua and his soldiers to wipe this culture off the face of the earth. That was the plan, and God succeeded that in that plan in, in doing what he promises to do, and that is to judge sin, and he did that in the culture. Now, I just want you to think through in Judah, when Judah starts to look like the Canaanites, God says, I, I'm, I'm going to judge you. But he says, I am going to say, save a remnant, and that remnant will be characterized by, here's the word, I want us to start with this word when we move from God to us. If I'm going to be godly, I'm going to start with this. He says, go out into the culture and mark everyone out there who groans at the wickedness in Israel. And if they groan, you mark them because we're not going to destroy them. They will be saved. That's an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing because it's much like Noah's day when everything was grieving God. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, God was grieved at the heart because the intentions and thoughts of man was only continually evil. And so God builds an ark and he says, I'm going to get people onto the ark but no one thought their culture was all that bad. Noah could only convince his, his sons and his daughter-in-laws to get on this, this ark, along with God, right, possessing these animals to march onto the, the barge. But all of that, right, everyone said, no, it's fine. They mocked him, the preacher of righteousness. And, and the point is that they did not think their culture was bad. They were fine with it. We need to recognize that we cannot be fine with our culture, particularly when our culture starts to look like the Canaanite culture, which starts to look like the culture in, in the 6th century BC in Judah when everyone was looking like everyone was doing whatever's right in their own eyes. So we need to say, no, no, we need to groan. And I say our daily Bible reading lately, because this morning, if you did your daily Bible reading, did you do your da daily Bible reading this morning? Uh, yeah, 
In Ezekiel 21, that was the second chapter of the Old Testament we read this morning, God says directly to, to Ezekiel, as for you, he calls Ezekiel in his book, the son of man, as for you, son of man, you are to groan with, with a breaking heart and bitter grief. Groan, groan before their eyes. Let them see you groaning. For when they, say, and when they say to you, why do you groan? You shall say, because of the news that is coming, the judgment that's coming. Some of you, put your fingers in your ears. I preached a sermon about a year ago on a topic of you shouldn't do that. You should definitely read the headlines at least. You should get a little bit of the news every day. You should know what's going on in the Middle East. You should know the crime stats in our culture. You should know these kinds of things, and they should lead you to groan. That's a godly thing. As a matter of fact, the difference between those who would be saved and those who would be destroyed in the 6th century BC in Judah was the people that groaned got to be saved because they shared the godly attribute of seeing sin for what it was and it broke their hearts. Groan with a breaking heart and bitter grief groan before their eyes. So before I talk about the anger that swells up within us where we want to go and, 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 and grab a weapon to hurt people, right? let's just start with that disquieted heart that feels really bad about the state of things. And so far, I've been talking about things over the wall, right? Headlines. But I know this week, you're going to go probably be with some people in your extended family, and there's probably things in their lives that make you mad, okay? And I hope it starts with not just, it's not provocation just because you're an irritable person, but it starts with this, a groaning and a breaking of your heart because you weep over the problems. Turn with me to Psalm 119. Go to the very end of this. This is an acrostic poem, as you know. I trust you know that. That's what those weird titles are over every section of this psalm. But go back just a little bit here to, to Psalm 119, verse 158. Longest chapter in the Bible. Sin, shin, tav are the last ones. Resh is the Hebrew letter that is 153 through 160. That means that every sentence in the original language starts with the letter resh. Look at 158. When the psalmist sees the faithless, they don't do what God says, I look at them with disgust. So we're moving from like the sighing and the crying to like, I'm disgusted by this because they do not keep your commands. You love God. You love his law. You love his truth. You love what he sends out from his word. You love the things that you're trying to do to be sanctified and the people around you don't care and they defy him. The Bible says, here's the right godly response, disgust. Now, are we to love the people that disgust us? Yes. The action of love, not the emotion of love. Love is not an emotion. Disgust is, right? This is a picture of my disgust over sin and the sin in people's lives. Go back up to verse 139. Scroll up here in this section called Sade. Sade is the, the Hebrew letter that starts all these verses, 37 through 144. 139 says, my zeal consumes me. Now, this zeal is like a passion, like a, a powerhouse. It's like the energy within me, and it's, it's bubbling up inside. It consumes me. It's taking over because my foes, my enemies, who forget your words, right? The lawless are my enemies, right? My friends are those who fear the Lord, just to quote more Psalms here. And the idea is my foes that do not follow God's law, they, 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 it, it just causes this, this bubble. It, it, my pulse gets faster, my blood pressure goes up, the vein in my neck starts to pop out. That's how I feel, the psalmist says. Go up a few more verses, verse 30, 136. My eyes shed streams of tears, okay? 
It's not devoid of, of groaning. Groaning is that pain that we feel. My eyes shed streams of tears because of people who do not keep your law. This is all over the Scripture. Now, let's go all the way up almost to the beginning, to Zion, uh, verse 53, the middle of this section of the acrostic poem. I just think it couldn't be said more concisely than this. Psalm 119, verse 53. Are your eyeballs on that verse? Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Okay. I, I think you need to know there is an anger that is righteous, and you ought to feel it. It starts with groaning. We talk about that in Romans 8. Groaning, we groan, just like creation personified groans. We want this to be fixed, but right now we don't feel good about it. We don't feel good. You can use words like disgust. We feel like crying, breaking heart, all the things that God said to, to Isaiah, I'm sorry, to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 21. I need to feel all that and say, nothing wrong with my Christian life because I feel that. Probably not the best response to someone today on the patio when they say, how are you? Don't say, I'm angry. But if you are, right, nothing wrong with that as long as you understand that you must be angry at the things that God is angry at. And God is angry when his laws are broken. God is angry when people don't do what he says. Okay, second half of this, which the, the part I want to focus on is this. Do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. What's the inverse of that? Do not sin. Do not, to not sin. Um, if I'm not going to sin, whatever this motion is that consumes me, the zeal, the passion, it's like fuel, I don't want it to make me do something wrong because it could, it, could, it, could, it could definitely lead to that. But I would rather do something right. Okay, now, next to that, I've got verses 28 and 29. Let's think about what might be derived from these examples in what seems like a, a whiplash move from not letting the sun go down on my anger, not giving the devil an opportunity, and all of a sudden we're talking about stealing. Whoa, different audience, different group, different idea. Well, it is in the sense that the topic is different, but it becomes a great illustrative text to deal with what I'm talking about. Why do people steal, right? Unless you're just Winona Ryder or something. You just uh, shouldn't even use this. I, I, see, whenever I use something current, you groan at me. But there are people that are crazy that steal for just weird, like psychologically bizarre reasons. But the most of the thieves that I know, they steal because they want stuff and they want to get it. Instead of working for it, they want to just take it. That's the easy way to get the stuff. Although it's not all that easy when you think about a thief. He's got to work at it. You got to think about where the cameras are. You got to think about what the laws are. You got to think about how much I can steal without going to jail. Whatever today, that's the new way to think about it. But let's just say I'm really I want to steal some really expensive stuff. Save me some paintings, or I want to I want to I want to rob a bank. You're going to have to work and plot and and do this in a particular way. You're going to take all your creative energy to want to get stuff, and you're going to have to take that energy and work. And you're going to do this by taking other people's stuff away. Now, the foundation of Old Testament ethic is we believe in the private property rights. That's what God taught. We have boundary markers. They're not supposed to be moved. That's your stuff. You are a steward of that stuff, and that is your stuff to direct. You can't have someone just come and take it. That's wrong. And what happens to you when you've worked hard for stuff and people come in and steal it is something has been destructively done here. That's why Satan takes the Sabaeans and uses the Sabaeans to steal from Job, and he shows that Satan is all about destroying things, and he destroys the property rights and, and, and the possession rights of Job, and this is destructive. But instead, look at our passage here. 
instead of you stealing Mr. Thief and using all your anger, all your energy and all your, uh, your creativity to steal, to stop stealing. Let the thief steal no longer, but rather let's get you to work on something else. How about this? Doing honest work. Let's have you do honest work with your own hands that he may have something to share with anyone who's in need. Okay. Whether this is intentional, authoritarian, I mean, the authorial intent, I'm, I'm going to say this is a perfect example of what I need. I want to take something like a motivation in my life, which is I don't like bad things happening. I don't like people forsaking God's law. I don't like them not doing what they should do. I want it to stop. Well, there's different ways to make it stop. I can go about it in a way that is not appropriate. It is a sinful way. Or I can find another way to see if something can be done. Let's just call it what many people do when they talk about anger. Let's talk about a destructive way and a constructive way. And when it comes to thieves, why don't you get your hands dirty and do something to fix the problem and then do it so well in this case that you won't be destructive to your neighbor. You could even say, hey, my neighbor doesn't have something. I'll just give him what he needs because I'm living under my means and I've worked hard to earn my money and now I can share, I can be generous and I can give him what I can meet needs. Wow, that would be constructive. I would be the liked guy in the neighborhood, not the thief in the neighborhood. That would be good. So constructive action. And so let me start with anger in this regard. I know that human anger can be so destructive and even godly indignation can be destructive if I just indiscriminately say, well, I just want all this to stop, so what can I do? I can learn how to build pipe bombs or something and I can fix the problem, right? That, that's, that's not how we fix the problem. God says there are things that fall short of God's standard and there are things within God's standard to fix things. So let's do something. I mean, just, let's just fundamentally think about all the things that the Bible does call us to do. To pray for our enemies, for instance. I mean, that would be something to do. Why don't you take all that anger that's channeling and, and bubbling rather within you and channel it into something that God says, this is constructive. Pour out your heart to me, right? Even the Psalms are filled with these things called imprecatory Psalms, the judgment Psalms, where the heart of the psalmist is taking anger and channeling into prayer to God. That might be constructive. Why don't you do something? Why don't, you, why don't you see what can be done to try and hold back this evil that makes you so angry? The indignation that you feel about the injustice, what can you do to fix it? Now, that's the first thing I'm saying is ask that question. Just like the thief needs to go and do something that's honest and good, that is not sinful, that is constructive, our anger should be a motivation to do what is good and not destructive. The next one is even better because a lot of things he's going to eventually get to in this passage in verse 30, 31 I think, is, is lived out in our mouths. And so he deals with our mouths, I believe. Verse 29, let no sapros, that's a great word, bitter, angry, yucky, dirty, filthy words come out of your mouth. So now we're talking about the sailor, right, who's cussing all the time. Well, I, I guess we are on the surface, but this is a great example of what we need. We need to turn words that just do nothing but tear down and corrode, and what we need to come out of our mouths is only what is good for, literally, construction, now, of course, that's metaphorically used, but that's the word, to build something. Use your words to build something, to fix something, to repair something, as fits the occasion. Make sure you're doing it at the right time, in the right way, and let's have it give grace to those who hear. You know what I want on the sinners who do wrong? You know what I want for every looter that's looting? Well, I'd like to go loot their house. Well, that would be a sinful way to respond. But here's the thing I would like. I'd like them to experience the grace of God. I'd like them in church next weekend after they make restitution for their thievery, singing that they're saved by grace. A, a wretch like them, they're saved by grace. I'd like them to experience the grace of God. I'd like God's favor to be upon them and no longer be lawbreakers, but be law keepers. That would be good. 
to be righteous people, doing good works, because God, just to invert 7 Psalm 11, verse 7, God is a righteous king. He loves righteous deeds. And I want to fix the problem. So what can I say that might be able to turn around the things that cause me indignant feelings and say, is there anything I can say that would fix this? Is there something I can write? Is there something I can, can teach, rebuke, reprove, exhort? Is there some kind of teaching I can give with patience to fix the problem? I mean, is there anything that can come out of my mouth that might be constructive? All right, number two, I never gave you the point today. Let indignation, here's a good verb, propel. Let it propel constructive action. And by action, I want to use that word because it's not just deeds, but it's words. Matter of fact, primarily it's words. Because what is a destructive use of my mouth? Sapros, sapro, that great, great, great. Think about it. When I'm angry, I like to criticize, belittle, right? I like to curse them. I'd like to just sit there and, 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 and slander them. I'd like to be filled with malice. I'd like to raise my voice, clamor. I'd like to yell at them. I'd like to do all of those things. Well, that would be sinful. That would not be constructive. That would be destructive. Like, I know that a gentle answer turns away wrath, to quote the Proverbs, and I understand this, that me engaging in some things only make the problem worse. So how can I, as it fits the occasion, what can be said in this occasion that might try to start to do something to change this? Actions work to fix. Words, let's speak to correct. Let's try and move people in the direction through evangelism, through teaching, through correction, through something that I can do at the right time, probably not when you're passing the mashed potatoes, right? But at some point, I want to say something that might challenge the wrong thinking of running headlong into sin and taking the words of God that are written on our conscience and throwing them behind us, to use another line from uh, Ezekiel and also Psalm 50. I don't want to take the words of God and throw them behind me. And, and that's the thing that people do. It makes us mad. And we think, okay, how can I get the words of God back in front of them? How can I have them adhere to the truth of God? What can I do to have them really ultimately experience the grace of God and give grace to them and see the favor of God rest on them through repentance? Is there anything I can say that might lead them to repentance? Now, this is weird, but I am really talking about the very thing I'm saying here, indignation, anger. And I'm saying it should be a motivation, a fuel that propels. I think no one said this more succinctly, as he often was known to do 500 years ago, than Martin Luther, who talked about anger. In one of his table talks, he put it this way, translated, it says, I find nothing, notice this now, that promotes work better than angry fear, angry fear, when I'm angry. For when I wish to compose, right, he was a songwriter, and write, right, he was a writer, he was an author, and pray, right, and preach well. When I want to compose, write, pray, or preach well, I must be angry. I mean, that's the best thing for me. Why? It refreshes my entire system. It, my mind is sharpened by it, and all unpleasant thoughts and depressions fade away because now I'm fixated on a solution. I, I, I teach homiletics, of course, on, in, in Compass Bible Institute, and when I take students, either in the preaching the Bible, teaching the Bible course or the preaching course for the grad students, I, I, I like to talk about one aspect that every good homiletics professor does, and that is we talk about urgency in preaching. Is there ought to be an there ought to be a passion? And the passion is not just about pointing out sin, the passion is about correcting it. Right? The, the passion is about you communicating something that solves a problem. And, and so I, I say things like, and other professors do too, when you preach on preaching, it, it, you need to have the sense that this is so urgent and important. And if you don't get it, there's a big price to pay. You've got to have that sense of this is a problem and I'm angry, right? I, mean, I, I don't usually put it in those terms, but I mean, Luther would, I, my best preaching, my best composing, my best sermon writing is done when I'm angry. And I think that's helpful to know that anger is not the problem. 
Anger is something that can be parlayed into something that is constructive. But you've got to call that every single time you feel it. What's constructive that can be done? What's constructive that I can say? And then you might be good for you to point out what's destructive. And here's one thing that's totally destructive. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What does that mean? That's an idiom, of course, a, an illustration. It's an example. It's rhetoric that's trying to say, don't let it last long. Right? And, and I love that. Right? Don't give the devil an opportunity by letting your anger remain. I love that Martin Luther is my example about someone who sees anger rightly as a propelling motivation to do something constructive. I like that because no one, really, if you've studied a little bit of the life of Luther, uh, was a more jovial, happy, joking uh, person. I mean, he reminds me of D.L. Moody when you read the stories about him. Even children, wanting children around him, giving them candy and, and, and singing songs and learning instruments and playing songs. And, and just his humor is just, it's, it's overweening. And, and Martin Luther, in his life, I mean, he, this guy took hold of life. Big old guy, right? I mean, talk about Thanksgiving. He loved Thanksgiving. I know it's an American holiday, but he loved to give thanks with good food. I mean, what you might even say is borders on indulgence. Even his humor, you would say, is, is bordering on indulgence. But he loved life. He loved what he, he experienced in terms of the grace of God, the things he gave thanks for, the things he enjoyed. He, he was funny. He was humorous. He was a good-natured man. And yet here he's saying, you know what really makes the best preacher? When I'm angry. You see, here's a guy that did not let anger take root in his life to become what is, what's first on the list. Look at the list in verse 31, bitterness. He was not a bitter man, right? He could be jovial, he could be happy, but he also knew where the right place for anger was in his life, and that's to motivate something constructive. So number three, let's put it that way. Let's, let not, let's, let's, don't let anger make you bitter. And, and that's a good word to represent all the others in this list because it's the kind of thing that we all kind of know in the English idioms of our language, right? We, we talk about that guy, that person's bitter. And what we mean by that is he's in a constant state of not being happy. He's frustrated. He's frustrated and he's frustrating because every, he's Eeyore, right? He just, everything's bad. And, and, and you think, okay, is that what this Bible means when it says be angry? No, it's not what it means. It means that you are going to read a headline and you're going to be angry before you're ever going to get to Thursday. And all I'm saying is let it do its work. Ask what, it's like guilt. Once it does its work, it's done. We say goodbye. We, we do whatever constructive words or actions this anger requires, and then we say, okay, let's get back to what we're called to do, and that is to enjoy our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. So we have to not let anger make us bitter, and I think the last three verses here, knowing that I think this is an elucidation and unpacking of not having it reside in us long so the devil makes it a, a, an instrument for sin in our lives. Well, what do we need? Well, there's three verses left, 30, 31, 32. I think we have three things that will keep you from letting anger make you bitter. Here's one thing that'll make you get through it quickly, use it constructively, and move on. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Well, if I did sin with my anger, if my anger led me to sin, that would grieve the Spirit, because all sin grieves the Spirit. Genesis 6, 6, that's what sin does by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There's a lot of things you could talk about if you're going to talk about the, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. What things could we talk about? Well, he immediately goes to this, the day of redemption, right? The day of redemption. That, that's future, the day of redemption. If I ask you today, are you redeemed? You'd probably say, yes, I'm redeemed, right? But you are forensically and legally, but you're not redeemed, redeemed, because the day of redemption has not come. 
The word comes from the, like the slave market, the Greco-Roman world. If you buy someone in the slave market, which was not just field workers, but it was all kinds of people, professionals or whatever, you might make a legal transaction if you're some rich guy and you're going to bring in a slave into your compound, into your house, into your castle, let's just say, to put it in the medieval period, which, of course, we're talking now anachronistically about the first century. Paul uses this word, the concept of redemption. It's to release you from that context, that confines of that ownership previously, and move you into this. Now, if I go and fill out the paper, let's just say I'm the person doing this, right? The minute I sign it, it's stamped, it's sealed, and it's done, and it's paid in full, you are mine, right, legally. But you haven't been brought out of the slave market yet, right? You have not been brought from a place of conscription with your old boss into the new place, which is serving in my, my estate. So here's the deal. We're waiting for that day of redemption. And the day of redemption is when God takes the place that we're experiencing, which Romans 8, we just quoted in a previous sermon, is so bad that the whole creation is waiting for it to happen, waiting for the redemption, the revealing of the sons of God, when we are in our context we were meant to be. Not just the context of the, of the political world where Christ is ruling and reigning, but where our bodies no longer are at war with us. But we are people now that are made like Christ with a body that is redeemed and glorified. And that is what we're waiting for. That's what the Bible says in Romans 8, we're groaning for. And the groaning is often punctuated by anger, anger, anger. And we're waiting for the day of redemption. That's when all the anger is behind us. Because there is no more sin in our, in our view. We're in the kingdom now, right? We're in the presence of Christ. So the day of redemption, I'm promised that. I'm not just like, like maybe you'll be there. I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in me, so I don't want to sin with my anger. I want to look forward to the day of redemption. So let's put it this way. Letter A, if you're building some subpoints here, I would say this. You want to make sure anger does not make you bitter. I'm saying anger is okay, but you can't sin. But you will sin if you let it stay, linger. How do you get rid of it? Well, you've got to have hope. And by that, I mean your theology is one of an optimistic hope. Hope, biblical hope, as it ends there in that argument in Romans 8, you have a hope that is not seen. It's not here yet, but I keep thinking about it. I keep looking for it. I keep praying for it. I pray just like Jesus taught me to pray, your kingdom come. That's what I want. I'm living in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, which is I'm setting my minds on things above. I'm always looking forward. I'm in 1 John 3, right? I know that when I see him, I'll be like him because I'm going to see him as he is so that whoever has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. So I become someone who always eschews sin. If I can keep my hope where it belongs, I have an optimistic eschatological hope. All history is moving, including mine, to the, to the, to the telos, the end of all of this, the eschaton, the final part of it, where now I'm going to be in the kingdom. You have that optimistic hope? You can move from anger about the headlines on a Wednesday to a meal of celebrating and singing on a Thursday. You can move, that's, that's okay. You're deft in that. You can, go, you can go and traffic in anger, motivating you to do something constructive, and then you're back now because you keep thinking this is going the right direction. No, it's going in the wrong direction. No, it's going in the right direction. Though the outer man is decaying. And Paul said this, and he was the one beaten by the adversaries. Right? He was persecuted. Outer man decaying a lot because they're throwing rocks at me and putting me in jail and, and, and whipping my back. But the inner man is being renewed day by day. Right? That, that picture of the inner anticipation of seeing Christ should do something to change my heart from being set on anger and bitterness and clamor, yelling and malice, bad things, like plotting to kill people, right? all that, gone. No, constructive, channel it for Now, I look forward to the end. Letter B, verse 31. 
Verse 31 says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, there's a lot of words here that don't relate to the first topic in the sense they relate, but they're not the same. Like you could say, well, he uses the word anger again, and he also uses the word wrath, which is a different word, thumos, which is the word for like the guy's always hot under the collar, he's, he's hot, he's you know, heated up. Well, that is what it means to groan and to be angry. And, and, and yet I'm told I can be angry and not sin. Well, I know one of the things that makes me not a sinner with anger is it's not residing in me. I let it do its job and then I'm done with it. So I can't let this exist in my life. It can't be a part of my character. Let the bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor. Bitterness, right? We get that. We know what that is. That's a, a, an illustration of something that tastes bad. You always have a bad taste in your mouth about everything. Let me just use that illustration. Clamor. Clamor is the word we use in a riot. Everyone's loud and yelling, right? We don't want that. We don't want to have that personality. And slander. We're always tearing people down. That's one way to use our pictos words, our bitter words. We're always tearing everybody down we don't like, right? All the enemies that make us feel disgusted, we're always saying disgusting things about them. Stop. Let it put it away, along with all the kakia, the word, Greek word, just all the bad stuff, everything bad that comes from you, letting anger reside in you. Satan is going to use that like fuel to torch all the destructive things he wants to do. Don't let that, put it away, put it away. Now, it's going to happen in that you're going to be angry, but you might have thumos, you might have that you might hot under the collar, I get that, groaning, and anger, and now orge, the word, it's like, I'm mad. Yeah, you're going to be angry, but let it do its work, and then we move on. So letter B, I put it this way, we, we can't, and this is how I put it verbally, we can't let the barbs of sin grab us and stick in our character. We've got to see sin for what it is and put it away from us. Not sin to get angry, but it's sin to let it reside and become a part of who I am. Bitterness in my mouth, bitterness in my words, anger, clamor, it becomes a part of my character, slander, it's my natural language, malice, just all the bad stuff that comes from being mad, I don't want that. Lastly, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you, look at how he forgave you. You ought to forgive. You ought to forgive like that. I was going to talk more about that concept later, but I think this fits nicely into what he's saying. Before the therefore of verse 1 of chapter 5, we've got this closing statement that I think still falls under the auspices of this idea of anger. And that is that my heart should be kind and tender and I had to learn to forgive the way God forgave me in Christ. And I know he forgave me in Christ two different ways if I'm, a, if I'm a Christian. You could think of it this way. Romans 5, he forgave me this way. He said, you're an enemy of mine, but I forgive you by letting go of your transgression because of Romans chapter 4, you've put your faith in me. Now, you who were hostile and an enemy, I'm now going to make peace with you. I'm at peace with God. Or another passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are alienated from God, but we are now reconciled to God. Now, that's a kind of, of relational restoration, and that takes place when someone sees their sin, for, confesses their sin, repents of their sin, and comes and wants peace. And then, I've been forgiven that way. But there was a kind of forgiveness that took place before that, too. It's a kind of forgiveness that takes place, the kind of forgiveness like Jesus expressed even on the cross talks about forgiveness of people crucifying to they're all going to heaven. I'm not talking about relationship here. We're talking about him entrusting himself to his father and him saying something that he, we would expect that if you had the power to send 10,000 angels and wipe these people out, you would do, but he doesn't. There's a sense of a fiamai. That's the Greek word for forgiveness, and it means to let go of. I'm letting go of this. 
Sometimes I let go of it and it no longer becomes a barrier between us and we have peace. Sometimes I can't have peace, but I still have to have that kind of forgiveness that God had toward me even before I was saved. It was his kindness that led me to repentance, to quote Romans chapter 2, verse 4. I want to be like God. And God forgave me in Christ in one sense by letting his reign on the crops of me when I was evil. Let the sun rise on me when I was unjust. He did all that. That's a kind of forgiveness. And then he takes the sin and he doesn't reward me according to it. And I'm saying that's exactly what we need. One last passage. Let me turn you there. Romans chapter 12. And, and, and you can fill in letter C here if you want. I have to learn to forgive. But an asterisk next to that because it's the kind of forgiveness that's not necessarily going to make us the best of friends. Even people you're going to eat with this week, some of them probably you're not going to be at peace with. But you can have a meal with them and you can... Put aside the kind of anger that will lead to slander and malice and clamor. And how do you do that? Because there's a kind of forgiveness that though it doesn't restore a relationship completely, it does allow you to live with kind words and tender hearts even when you don't agree and even when they cause you pain and even if you want to use the subtitle, even if they make you mad. And I can live in peace in my world even when my world makes me mad. Why? Because I'm going to live this out. Drop down to verse 14. Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Now, how in the world can I do that? If I'm angry, I'm not going to bless them, right? But I've already learned I can use my words in constructive ways. I can use my action in constructive ways. And maybe I can, even in what I'm saying. It's not like, I'm so glad you're a lawbreaker. I want you to have a great day. That's not the kind of blessing we're talking about. It's you responding in a way that makes you not the executioner and not the judge and the jury, right? You're saying, no, my role is different here. I'm going to bless and not curse. Now, drop down to verse 17. It makes it very clear. Repay no one evil for evil. Right? Give thought to what's honorable in the sight of everyone. Even if I say my governor is an evil man doing evil things, signing evil bills, and I would say that's not the totality of his life, but there's no arguing that. Right? He is, in that regard, evil, a lawbreaker, and he should make you angry. Right? But when it comes down to it, I also realize it's not my job to send him a pipe bomb. That's not my job. Right? I have a different job, and my job is found right here, honorable, to live an honorable life. If possible, so far as it depends on you, man, live peace. If I'm at the English laundry, man, and he's there, right? All right, that was an inside joke. Um, I, I wanna, I, I'm, I'm not going to put my foot out and trip him on the way to his table, right? And tell him to put his mask on. I'm not going to do that. No one remembers COVID? No one? You do remember that, right? Should have made you mad, by the way. Okay, made me mad. Okay, but if I'm there, I'm not tripping him, right? Because I'm not avenging myself. I'm going to, here's a word now, leave. And it has a relation to aphiomai. Aphiomai is a word that really means to release. This is the word didomai. Didomai is a, uh, at least on the same spectrum of, of cognate words. I want to leave it, but in this case, it's to a direct object. I need to leave it, didomai. I need to hand it over to what? To someone else who's angry also. Leave it to the anger, the extreme anger of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. He's the one wetting his sword, not me. I will repay, says the Lord, not your job to repay. To the contrary, if your job here, if he asks you to pass the butter, right? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And for by so doing, not meaning to the exclusion of constructive words, rebuking, reproving, exhorting, and writing some emails, fine, great, do it. But here's the deal. You're going to heap burning coals on his head. Lots of interpretations of this text. Go listen to my sermons on that. I don't have time to go through them all right now. But the idea, at least I would say, includes 
and perhaps is, that I am going to do something that God does to me when he is kind to me, leading me to repentance. God's kindness, Romans 2, 4, leads me to a place of going, I can't believe he's so nice to me. And I trust that maybe it'll be that kind of thing that sears his conscience. Either way, I know my job. Don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Doesn't mean I haven't prayed some imprecatory psalms. Doesn't mean that I haven't given constructive words and, and reproving words. Doesn't mean that. But it does mean that my job is not to be the one who dispenses anger in ways that destroy. God's gonna do that, and he promises to do that, and there's no exemption in the New Testament that God in the Old Testament was a God of vengeance, and in the New Testament, he's not. Read 2 Peter chapter three. Read Revelation chapter six through 19. He's going to repay. He will judge the world. There's some serious climate change promised in 2 Peter three, right? It's gonna melt with an intense heat, the Bible says. So it's coming, but it's not my job. And, and I need to say, so I gotta learn to forgive. What kind of forgiveness? Not the kind of forgiveness that can make me best friends. I'm not going to break bread in a small group with them. I understand that. But I am going to have the kind of relationship with them that is going to be post me saying, forgive them. These ignorant people in unbelief doing sinful things that make me mad. Put all that together, I hope, what we see, is that we can be people that rightly say, the world makes me mad. Quickly, what do I do with it? How do I respond to it? I can't sin, it can't be a sinful expression, and I know sin would be for me to harbor it to allow me to be a bitter person, an angry person. I cannot do that. Use it constructively, let it be a fuel to propel some constructive behavior, constructive words, constructive email, do something constructive. But then I say, okay, ultimately, God is a God of vengeance, God is the God who is a God of wrath, God will deal with this. I'm not gonna be a bitter person. Matter of fact, I'm going to enjoy all the things that God gives, which is a alluded to earlier, is that he's created foods and everything else that's good for those who believe and know the truth. What a great line. 1 Timothy 4.3. I'm created by God, and it is good to be received, but it's only received as the good thing when it's received with thanksgiving. It's made holy. It's set apart. It's sanctified by the word of God, the truth of God, that you see it rightly, and prayer. So we have a lot of good things to rejoice in. It's not mutually exclusive to rejoice and to celebrate, and also to have this punctuated experience with the emotion and feeling of inner belligerence that is described in Scripture as anger. Be angry, but don't sin, and don't let it become a part of your character. Let's pray. God, help us in this world filled with things that are, as the world would say, triggering for us in terms of our feelings, but the trigger is not any kind of allowance to do whatever we want. God, help us to be restrained and controlled and to exercise the fruit of the Spirit not to be insipid and not to be anodyne, not to be sitting on the sidelines and doing nothing, but being constructively propelled. And dare I say, in some small way like Martin Luther, to let my anger clarify my thinking, to say, here's what I need to say, here's what I need to pray, here's what I need to write, here's what I need to sing, but I'm going to do these things in a way that maybe would have some contribution to fixing these problems. And then, God, let us get back to rejoicing. We have so much to be thankful for. We have a theology that leads optimistically to the kingdom. It's coming. And though our outer man is decaying, though the structure of the outer culture in which we live in is decaying, God, I pray our hearts would be filled with thanksgiving and joy and even peace as we celebrate the good things that you give us. Let us have both on this spectrum of emotions, the anger over sin and the joy over salvation and the promise of the coming kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.